I'd like to start out tonight by asking uh, some questions about questions. It's going to be a little darker in the room tonight. The scripture will be on the screen just to help guide you. But I want to start out with uh, asking some questions about questions. Um, today, what was the most interesting question uh, that you asked someone? Okay, just process it. It's a rhetorical question. I'm not looking for crowd participation, but just, just think to yourself. What was the most interesting question you asked someone? Uh, for me, I, I walked into uh, my favorite establishment in general, really, uh, El Magwe, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, I, I talk about it a lot here. Um, I also mention often they call me Poncho there. Uh, still unsure what that means, but I walk in today, and I've never done this before there, and, and I, I think I've started a new trend today, but I was like, look, look guys, and I, I try to speak in Spanish as much as I can, uh, leading my fifth trip to Ecuador here this spring. You'd think I could speak a little bit better, um, and, and, and these guys think that I can speak pretty fluent. They talk to me like I can, just because I say the same things every time we see each other, and then we start talking in English. Hola, como estas? Donde la agua de mineral? I'm la table, you know, like, I'm, you know. And uh, <laughs> so today I walk in and I'm like, look, here's the deal. I'm throwing a party tonight and I need, I need an insane amount of chips, okay? And I'm trying to say that in, in Spanish, you know, so I'm just like, grande nacho, you know, donde la mouthe, you know, I'm just like kind of feeling it out. So they like, they like do a huddle in El Magüey. There's like three or four of them that kind of come together and like, you know, trying to figure out what I'm saying. I'm, I, I need a lot of chips, okay? So my question to these guys was like, wh- what can you do? Like, give me the most amount of chips that you can provide. So he comes back to me. He's like, all right, here's the deal. And he told me the cost. And he's like, um, come back with a garbage bag. No, a, excuse me, a garbage can, okay? So the second service tonight, afterwards, we're welcoming back all of our Linwood students. We have an entire garbage can full of El Magüey nachos. And then um, literally like a big, you know, like an like industrial-sized can. And, uh, and then um, they're throwing in, you know, all the... I tried to get the cheese sauce because let's just agree right now, right? Can we just all... Can we together right now have a moment? If you haven't had Omagwe's cheese sauce, there's, there's, some, there's some issue that I think you're dealing with. Um, go tonight afterwards, enjoy the cheese sauce. So that, that was the most interesting question I asked someone today, but... The next question about questions I have is, what was, the most que- uh, what was the most interesting question you were asked? Okay? So someone coming to you and asking you something. Uh, I'm, I'm asked a whole lot of questions uh, at a lot of different points in the day. And um, today, I, I had one slotted. And, uh, and then I hung out with my kids, which typically they trump because they're always coming up with funny things to say. And, uh, and so we're back here in the back, and there's a bathroom back here, and my kids enjoy going to the bathroom back here. And I'll spare you some of the details, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out where Maddox is, my youngest. And the most interesting question I was asked all day, I open the door to the bathroom, and he looks over at me, and he's going, and he's like, what do you think you're doing? And I'm just like, it's like what kind of? <laughs> he didn't say anything else. That's all he said. He, like, just looked back like, just went back to work, and I shut the door. I, I'm sorry. You know, I'm just checking in on you, bro. <laughs> now, <laughs> some more questions about questions. Um, what is the most interesting question or the most dominating question in your mind recently that you have about God? Because in, unless you're an atheist, which actually I don't believe in atheism. Uh, I've talked about this before. 
Uh, my belief is that if, if you call yourself an atheist, um, then you actually determine yourself as a god. And the whole premise of atheism is belief that there's no God. So if there isn't a God, I think really at the core, you believe yourself as a God. Um, so outside of the atheists, um, everyone is wondering certain things about God. So I'm wondering, what is the most interesting, intriguing, dominating question you've asked of God recently? Uh, my a disciple right now and I are, are kind of moving into a new phase in our relationship and we're asking each other both one question each, and then we're just studying those questions for two weeks. And so the question that I had and I posed to him, and we're wrestling with it for a couple weeks, is what does God desire in prayer? What does he desire? Like, what does he want from us in prayer? So I'm just curious about you. What, what questions do you have about God? Well, tonight, um, man, tonight's one of those stories that if you spend some time growing up in the church assuredly there was a felt board Sunday school for, for this story, okay? And, and probably not just one a year. This, this was one of the stories that made its way onto the felt board like once a trimester, you know? Um, because it's, it, it felt wheelhouse for the Sunday school teacher. Like they could teach it. They had great pictures. You know, fire was involved, which always was interesting. Um, but tonight there's going to be questions asked in our text and then there's going to be questions asked of you and I that I'm not so sure that we're ready to deal with. And so I want to pray tonight over our hearts, and, and we're, we're going to go for it, okay? Let's pray, and then we'll study the burning bush. Uh, God, I recognize full well that there's many folks who have walked in here ill-prepared and not ready and and I'm grateful, God, that, that we're all here in every place of our walk and journey and either nearness to you or distant. But I'm praying right now by your Holy Spirit's power that you would suddenly and overwhelmingly prepare us. God, draw us in right now to be able to hear straight from you. I love you, God, in your great and holy name. Amen. Well, tonight we start Exodus chapter 3, and uh, a baby has been born. Uh, despite great odds against him, he survived. He was put in a little wicker basket, sent down the river. Um, at the decree of Pharaoh himself, every male born would be killed. And so the Hebrew mother of our good friend Moses decides to try to spare him. Uh, Moses' sister ends up seeing the interaction between Pharaoh's daughter and Moses as a young child and, and suggests that um, someone else should nurse the child once she sees that Pharaoh's daughter takes interest in the young lad. And so interestingly enough, as we've mentioned previously, Moses then is nursed by his own mother. But eventually he has to go back and lives for about 40 years or so under uh, Pharaoh's rule and reign, under his palace as one of Pharaoh's daughter's adopted sons. Uh, last week he killed someone. How's that for a segue? Uh, walks out, watches his people, the Jews, the Hebrews, in their persecution and slavery by the Egyptians. And taking compassion on them, he strikes the Egyptian down, and as I said last week, and we saw in God's word, he buries him in the sand, okay? Um, and, uh, you know, I think we can take some murderous cues from that. Sand isn't a good place to bury someone, um, not that we're all taking cues for that. And if you are taking notes right now, some of you are like, oh, that's good, you know. Uh, please stop. Uh, it just got weird in here. Um, 
And then Pharaoh finds out. And so what Moses does is he flees to a distant land called Midian. And uh, there he's sitting by a well. Uh, Some ladies, seven sisters, happen upon the well to fetch a pail for their herd. And uh, some other shepherds come up on the well, and the scripture says, drive the ladies out. Well, Moses saves them, delivers them, the scripture says, stands up for these ladies, okay? We don't know with what, his bare hands, with words, a rock and a stick, you know, we don't know, but he defends these ladies. And so they go back to their father, and their father is like uh, Jethro, by the way, is like, hey, uh, uh, so why are you guys back so soon? Aren't you guys working with the herd? Um, and uh, I don't think it's actually herd. The sheep, what is a sheepfold flock? Okay, either way, it's all good. The sheeps, a lot of them. Um, he's like, aren't you guys, you guys are supposed to be working out, out, out with the sheeps. So, like, what's going on? And, uh, and, and they explain the story that a man had saved them. So he's like, where is he? Like, I want to spend time with this guy. And so they go and get Moses, and then eventually Moses marries one of Jethro's daughters. And so that's where we're at now in Exodus chapter 3. If you can throw that slide up, you guys can follow along. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. So just so we're all together, he's gone from uh, essentially, as the Disney movie describes, a prince of Egypt, and now he's shepherding a flock. Uh, Shepherding a flock to Egyptians is something that is seen as one of the lowest of the lows. Joseph talks about this in Genesis chapter 46. He says that shepherding is like abominable. How do you say that? It's bad, okay, is is what he's saying. So Egyptians in general don't view shepherding as a good thing. So imagine this. Uh, for 40 years, Moses has grown up learning the culture of the Egyptians, well-learned in it, uh, says Stephen's speech uh, in Acts 7. And he gets so well-learned in Egyptian culture that he even believes what the Egyptians believe about shepherding, is that it's not an admirable trade. But the metaphors and the analogies and the depth, the fact that Moses, who will be the deliverer of Israel as a shepherd, is pretty beautiful, isn't it? Uh, The scripture is filled with shepherding imagery. Uh, The scripture calls uh, the Christ the chief shepherd. So isn't it interesting then that all of these ideas of shepherding throughout the scripture, God would use in Moses' preparation for 40 years in Midian to prepare him to shepherd God's people out of Egypt. Um, He had some good practice with other things that are dumb, okay? Um, Sheep, they're not wise, okay? Um, I don't know if you've ever shepherded sheep yourself. Um, Talked about this many times, but they will watch each other be mauled by wolves while just saying, bah, okay? I mean, they'll just be sitting there grazing while a wolf is, you know, cutting the jugular of the sheep next to it, and it'll just look on in pure amazement, not thinking that it's next, okay? Interestingly enough, then, biblically, we're often called what? Sheep. We, like sheep, have gone astray, the Scripture says. And the sheep imagery just continues to go on and on. He's a shepherd in Midian, 40 years. And look at this. And I'm really curious about this particular fact. And he fled 
and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this is a really peculiar moment in the scripture. Why in the world does Moses lead his flock to the other side of the wilderness? Again, I'm not, I, I didn't take shepherding 101, okay? Um, but I'm pretty sure that the wilderness is not a luscious place, place for sheep to graze. They need sustenance. They need food. So why does he take them across to, the scripture says, the other side of the wilderness? We're not sure. But he finds himself at Mount Horeb, or often called Mount Sinai. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, just so we all are together in this, because I feel like we have to be. Believe it or not, it doesn't matter. I think we can get our facts straight. Does anyone see anything about Moses' life right now that he was like sitting down doing his, as many of you call, quiet time? Like, you know, did he, did he have, like there, there was no... Bible at this point, okay? For those of you taking notes, like, uh, there was no scripture. All right. So Moses isn't like off in the corner. He's not fasting. Um, in fact, he's, he's just doing his trade. And then almost out of the blue, it seems, the angel of the Lord appeared in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, says the middle of verse 2, And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, if you're a shepherd or if you're a human, this is an interesting sight. He's on the other side of the wilderness. His sheep are somewhere in the vicinity. And he looks over and he sees a bush. He well knows what a bush is. But there's one interesting thing about this bush. It's flaming, but he can tell that the flames aren't consuming the bush. Um... I don't know about you, but this would certainly draw my attention. And the scripture says that it's brought on by an angel of the Lord. Um, I learned in grade school that fire was bad. Stop, drop, and roll. You guys remember it? Right? You still, like, practice it often, maybe with your children. I'm always worried about fire because my kids uh, all reside on the, the upper tier of our house. And so I make sure we have, like, seven smoke detectors, you know, like, on every step going up, you know, just in case, like, any smoke happens. We're taught that fire is bad. And yet, in this case, a fire is synonymous with the Lord, as it were. And then, just in case you've forgotten, fire later in the early parts of Acts is synonymous with what? With the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are like, hold on, Mark, but, but hell is like fire and hell, bad. I, I agree. I agree. Okay. So why in this case does God decide to come in the form of a bush? And why Moses? And why this moment? These are all questions that I have, and I'm going to ask more questions. And pretty soon those questions are going to start turning away from the story itself, and start turning to you and I. Well, look at what happens next. Verse 3. And Moses said, and apparently apparently he's talking to himself, slash the bush at this point, right? So, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. 
um, Jared and I were talking about, this is a weird verse, and we had to do a lot of like Hebrew research on this, trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. Because in one hand, it, it seems like he's turning away. And Moses said, I will turn aside. Like, I don't know about you, but the word aside to me is like, is like I'll turn aside. But then the verse seems to say that he's con- like really drawn in by the bush that's burning. Uh, I, I would say both Jared and I agree, like the, the phrasing here is, is indicating he's, he's really consumed, intrigued, drawn by the sight that he sees. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. <laughs> and if you've seen the Ten Commandments, it goes like this, Moses, you know, right? <laughs> the ever-classic voice of God in the 50s, Moses, right? Um, now, best I could do, burning bush. Um, I tried, I tried. Could, could you imagine just for a second? You're seeing this bush being inflamed and yet not being consumed. And then you haven't seen any animated films at this point. And then it just starts talking. And not only does the bush talk, but it calls you by name. Listen, there are certain moments in the Bible that I know are really hard to believe. And for those of you that are doubters by nature, uh, you're cynical by nature, this is one of those stories you're like, mm, not so much. I understand. And the big question that I have that has helped me understand is why this moment in time? And why in the world Moses? Just for clarification, Moses is old, okay? Moses is nearing 80, okay? So he's seemingly on the back end of his life. And you'll remember he murdered someone. And, and so you'll remember like all of this tension then that has had to do with Moses' life. And so my big question is always, and I'm sure yours is as well, why does God give gifts to certain people? Why does he choose them for certain roles? Or what is he doing over here? The point is never who God chooses. The point is always God. The point of this story, the entire Exodus story, will never be Moses. He wasn't over in the weeds doing his quiet time. He wasn't fasting. He wasn't at least recorded in God's word, pursuing the Lord tremendously. And Moses, I believe, is the one who wrote it. It's God's story. And in this moment, God shows up because we are on God's timeline. And I tell you what, like the moments in my life I start to get consumed with my own timeline, I have to, and you have to pause for a second and be reminded about moments like this. Why Moses? Why now? Why a bush? God! It's his story, and it's his timeline, and it's his way. And maybe, just maybe, God in this moment chooses a bush because Moses is going to see phenomenal natural wonders and it's going to have to start somewhere. 
And I'm not just talking about seas that are parted before him with little dolphins swimming on the side like all of our preschool stories showed, right? Like you got dolphins leaping in and out of the, you know, as the Israelites are walking down. It's not just that. He's going to see locusts come out of nowhere. He's going to see the angel of death come down and swoop down and kill all the Egyptian firstborn. He is going to see with the Israelites some crazy things with his own eyes. And it all starts right now. Have you seen some of those crazy things? And you're like, uh, no. <laughs> uh, no, I, I actually haven't seen. Like I was even praying over a bush in my backyard. You know, God, any time now, you know. Just go ahead. You like camped out, set up a tent. Maybe, you know. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about have you encountered the Lord? Have you encountered him? When Moses is about to, when the Lord saw that he turned aside, middle of verse 4, God called out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And you got to love Moses. Uh, here I am. <laughs> it's like hide and go seek kind of. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, Moses. Oh, he, And at the actual Hebrew here is, behold, here I am. Like that's the, it's like Moses like, ta-da, like, you know, I've been waiting all along. Do you, don't you think, though, just for a second, that he's a little bit weirded out, right? Again, like, we're, we, we get consumed in all this thought. Listen, what does Moses know about God? Have you ever thought about that before? At this point in his life, raised as an Egyptian, 40 years in Midian under the tutelage of Jethro, the priest of Midian, what does he know about God? What doesn't he know about God? He certainly doesn't have the frame of reference that you and I do. Right? So this may be one of his clearest, most early interactions, and certainly in the interaction side with God. Moses says, here I am. And then God responds in verse 5. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. My rendition says pumas. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Um, this really begs an interesting question. Reverence. This is God communicating, you better take those things off because everything right around here is holy, I am here. Are things still that way? Do we still fall under the same concept of holy ground? Let me ask this. Have you ever had moments before, knowing this story, or others like it in the Old Testament, where you've like been in a place and you felt like you should take off your shoes and it wasn't because it was cordial? Have you ever like been so consumed before you're just like, I, I got to take these off, you know, because it, it felt consecrated. In, in other words, it felt set apart. It was like this place right now. I've shared the story before, but I was in a youth choir in a middle school and high school. And we went on choir tours every year, even though I couldn't sing a lick. It was still a whole lot of fun. We did like interpretive dance. You should have saw me. It was great. And um, I've, I've shared the story before, but there was this one church and, you know, we were on choir tour, so we're expecting big crowds and, you know, just awesome fanfare. This one church, 10 people, 10. And there's like 40 of us. We're more than they are, okay? 
And, you know, we're singing up there, and all of us were just bummed. We're like, are you serious? We're on a choir tour, and our first crowd is a family. You know what I mean? Like, it's like a mom and dad. And we, we, I was counting two dogs in the ten. You know what I mean? It was like, it was, it, was, it was high estimate. But something happened in that room. And it, it will literally go down for me as one of my greatest, most vivid encounters with God. I'm not sure what happened. All I knew was like in that moment of time, in, it just felt set apart. It felt holy. But my question still remains. Should we still be taking off our shoes in here? I grew up in a culture where, um, where the church building was like you don't do certain things in it. You know? Uh, the church building isn't a place um, for running around. Did your pastor ever get on you for that or your parents? Stop running. It's the church building. As my kids like do laps in here, you know. <laughs> Go for it, kids. Make sure you beat your brother, you know. And they're like running around. <laughs> I think our concept of reverence has gotten very irreverent. I believe that God is holy. So I believe that anywhere that God is, which is everywhere, the scripture says, he's omnipresent, is holy because God is there. At the same time, because of the access that we have to God now, it requires our reverence, our awe, our fear of him, but not in a legalistic, lawful way. We are now under a new covenant. And that covenant is not shrouded by laws and rules and regulations. Don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean that we are now irreverent. Are you with me? Because that's a huge movement, especially in the 70s, the 80s. Some of you guys live that. You know, it's all about Jesus now. It's freedom now. We can wear holes in our jeans and, you know, smoke doobies for Jesus and like all these things. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We are called to be reverent in fear and awe of the Lord and at the same time celebrate the new covenant which is grace. Which is not bound by laws or rules or regulations but now in freedom we're following Christ. So the question that I always get asked is, well Mark, what what happened to these things? Like shouldn't we be taking off our shoes when we walk in the auditorium? Listen, you're welcome to but do it in your freedom in Christ. Don't do it because someone else said, hey, this is how you're supposed to do it in here. And please, if the Lord ever speaks to you, listen, right now, get on your face and worship me, then you better in that moment revere a holy God. Amen? So please understand this moment. Take off your sandals, the shepherd's sandals. This is holy ground. And he said, and I just, guys, I just love this. I, I just love this. And this is, I mean, this is God's voice out of a bush. And he said, hold on a second, real quick. Do you see the he? Do you see that? Okay. Now, I know the early phrase said angel of the Lord. The problem is the, the word Lord that we see here is, is both Elohim and Yahweh. Okay. God is here. And for those of you guys that ever saw a painting of Jesus as a female with a ponytail, not true. Okay, just to clarify, in my Bible, does it say he? Does it say he in yours, in your phone? It does, okay? Now, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
and the God of Jacob. And look what happens. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What does he connect? Listen, all of a sudden, listen to this. All of a sudden, in one moment in history, Moses' identity gets crystal clear from 80 years of it being clouded. Can we agree? 80 years of a clouded identity, born a Jew, put on a little mini boat, sent down a river, raised an Egyptian, out in Midian, confused now, who am I? I, I'm compassionate towards the Jews, I killed the man over the Jews, but I don't even know what I am, am I a Midianite now? And now all of a sudden God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And apparently, these are characters that he's heard about. For he was afraid then, after he heard these things, to look at God. Um, have you ever felt that way before? Afraid to look at him. Um, you've been a kid, okay? Have you ever been afraid to look at your parents? Of course you have. Of course you have, right? Get caught in the act. It's much easier just to walk on by. Like, have you, ever, have you ever walked in late to a curfew? Like, you, you think that your parents are sleeping on the couch. Here's, like, tiptoeing, <laughs> you know. Please don't see me. Uh, typically, not looking is an issue of shame. And um, I feel like some of you guys have definitely experienced that. I don't even want to look on you because just by looking at you, it will bring on it so much shame. Um... The problem is the psalmist in, in so many of his songs is like, like, I gaze upon the glory of the Lord, you know. So is it shame here? Is it fear? Is it reverence? Is it being overwhelmed? No matter what the emotion or the reality, he's afraid to look at God. And then God says in a conversation with Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in, who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Remember what we saw last week? God saw, God heard, God knows, and he remembered. So far, what have we seen? I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered. Now what? I have surely seen the affliction of my people, and I've heard their cry. I'm here. I'm God. All of these groanings from my people, I know their hurt. I know their pain. I know what they're going through. And now it's time to do something about it. And I have come down, please see this, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Come on. He doesn't say, Moses, I've come down, and you and I are going to be buddy-buddy now. I've come down, you know, we're just going to embrace with a big hug. I've come down, no, he says, I've come down to deliver I've come down to deliver. When God comes down, leaves his throne, as it were, consistent times in the scripture, and certainly the most significant, it's to deliver. I know sometimes we uh, don't think of Jesus in this way, but I say, praise God that he comes down. Praise God that the God that we worship gave us a very crystal clear image of who he is as God. He comes down, leaves his throne to deliver. 
In our case, sin. In this case, slavery from the Egyptians. Look at this. I've come down to deliver them, verse 8, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, which is huge. Why? In Egypt, they're in a squeezed space. And remember, they be having babies, okay? And if you've ever been in a one-bedroom apartment, you got six kids, things aren't going so good, okay? It's tough up in there. And that's what's happening with these Israelites. They're in a very squeezed, slave-infested space in Egypt. They're, and now God says, first, I'm going to take them to a land that's broad. I'm going to give them some space so that they can be making some more babies, all right? That's my translation. And then he adds this. A land flowing with milk and honey. And some of you guys are like, that's not appealing, right? How many of you guys don't like milk? Lactose intolerant, anyone? Okay. No, no one here, actually. Um, my wife hates milk. You know, I don't really understand why. Uh, I like milk. That's why I eat ice cream. Um, <laughs> not a big fan of the jugs, but the containers that have gallons in them of ice cream, those are nice. But what starts here is, is an image of a land, of a promise that has no barriers. Remember, he's in the wilderness, in a desert. And God says, I'm going to take all of my people and I'm going to uproot them out of Egypt. And I'm going to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And that phrase is repeated many times throughout the Old Testament. To the place of the, and this isn't the only time we see this list, of the Canaanites the Hittites, the Amorites, the uh, uh, Perizzites, the, the, the Hivites, and the, Je- uh, the Jebusites. And this list is also repeated in Genesis. And now, verse 9, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So he says, verse 10, and just like, so you're Moses, and you're just like taking this in, okay, right on. I'm with you, land flowing with milk and honey. And don't you think there's a point, like, why does this concern me? Right? Like, God, this is a nice conversation. Like, I'm really enjoying this. Should we sing Kumbaya now together? What's happening? Verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. May I just for a moment. Um, he's around 80. And God says, you, it's time. You. I'm calling you. 80 years old, a shepherd, used to be a prince, shepherd now. And I'm calling you to deliver my people out of Egypt. Uh, we celebrate a lot here the seasoned folks. When I say seasoned, I'm talking about those with some gray hair, those that are a little bit older, those who have some grandkids. And uh, if you haven't heard me say it once, you've, I believe, heard me say it a hundred times, we are so incredibly thankful for the seasoned folks here in our body. Aren't we? Amen? I mean, just, just really thankful. That was really affirming to them. Thank you. Um, I heard a boo in there. Um, we're really, really thankful for you. And listen, um, most times, all the time, I share things with you, uh, seasoned folks, encouraging you and thanking you for being here. 
But right now I have something very poignant to say to you. Moses is 80 years old-ish. And his life has not even started yet. The real purpose that God has taken 80 years worth of life has now come to fruition. Remember you were a baby on a little boat. Remember that? That was good, but it wasn't yet what I had for you. Remember you were a prince of Egypt. Those were forming years. You needed those, but not yet. Remember 40 years in the wilderness and desert of Midian, and you thought that you were going to retire as a shepherd. Guess what? You're 80, and it's go time right now. Right now. No more waiting, no more sitting around. Right now, your life, Moses, will be lived. We talk a lot about discipleship here season, folks. And the reason why we talk about it is because we long to be the biblically commanded church where disciples are making disciples. And I feel like many of you seasoned here see it as your opportunity to pass the baton. In fact, I have heard it said in that language, listen, you know, you need to press in to the younger generation because one day your time will be up. But it's not yet. It's not yet. You still have the baton. You may be retired from your work, but my friends, in the gospel, there is no such 401k. You're still holding the blessed baton of the gospel. And the scripture says to run the race and finish it. And I'm just encouraging you, my brothers and sisters who have grandkids, who have a little gray hair, who feel like your life has already been lived, maybe it's just getting started. Maybe. Maybe you have even no comprehension of the young women, women here who will sit underneath your tutelage as you show them the person of Christ. And yes, in each one you're passing a baton, but it's not because you don't hold it. It's firm right here until God calls you home or he comes back himself. I'm encouraging you, challenging you, loving you so much to say, please, in this body, it's not time yet to pass the baton. The heart is still beating and we respect you and we're looking to you and we love you. I got to interact with the nicest couple in the world last night. 75 years old. I met the guy in Hardee's, and last night he was in my living room. Beautiful uh, wife. Actually, he's 77, she's 75. And I just sat there loving the fact that I get to interact with older folks, seasoned folks. And it's like, this guy is amazing. So much to give, and you have so much to give in this particular church. And yet I feel like you're cheering on those who have the energy You're cheering on those and celebrating the youthfulness. You're smiling at the kids. You're giving handshakes and blowing kisses. But what this church needs is for you to disciple. For maybe God, even right now, just peering all the way through your life and say, listen, from a bush or just from this vantage point now, now is the time. No more waiting around. And then, for those of you in, in like the, the, the 30-somethings, right, which is really interesting because when we planted this church, like all of our friends now, like now all of 
the, the other people are having kids. Like now we're kind of the, the old folks, right? Like, like, like when we planted the church, no one had kids. One of our pastors had one child when we started the church. That was it. The ML kids was ah baby, okay? All right? All right? And so I, I feel like we're like, listen, we got kids. We got to take care of the kids. We got to do the kids. We got to love on the kids. The kids is our season. We'll get there like one day, man, I can't wait to like, you know, just have more time. Or do you remember what it was like back in college when all we did was have time? I'm saying, church, right now, no matter what season you're in, whether it be seasoned, whether it be a 30-something, whether it be a teenager, whether it be a college student, or some other character in that timeline, God calls, and his calling is consistent, and his calling comes from God's word. And as a believer, you can decide that you'd like to run from that. Jonah did that, and it didn't go so well for him. What if just all of us in this room, no matter what season of our life, just said, yes, God. I'm tired of looking to someone else. I'm tired of waiting on someone else to do something. Can I share one other thing? We had a cleaning day here. Uh, this past uh, Saturday, and uh, sent out an email, you know, cleaning day, and uh, we had a small but mighty crew, 10 of us, okay, email went out to 365, 75 covenant members, 10 of us showed up, and we, we whipped it up, man, mopped the floor, did the thing. I mean, we were cleaning shelves and dusting. It was awesome. But amidst it all, my thought was this. My thought was this. Like a year and a half ago, I remember sending out emails about whatever it was. And it was like, no matter what, there was just a crew. And it was never small and mighty. It was like, you might, like I, I literally got 150 donuts for us. And you can imagine the fun the 10 had. You know, we're like, oh, my ten. Like, this is, you know, it's amazing. Now, if any of you feel guilty right there, not my intention. I never want any of you to feel guilty by comments like that. What I do want us to feel as a body is not that you should have come. I don't know. I'm not saying that everyone had to be here for cleaning day. It wasn't an expectation. It will never be an expectation. But what I'm saying is, when we're all in together as a body, in our calling, whether it's discipleship or doing things like that to serve one another, or we love St. Charles, the pursuits that we have, or whatever it is, going to Ecuador, whatever it is that your personal individual pursuits are in Christ, if we're all in together, that church looks pretty all in, doesn't it? And when we come together, then it's like a celebration of that. But I feel like many of us in general have the attitude of someone else will do it, someone else is doing it. I mean, that person's more gifted than I. And God in this moment from a bush is calling a dude who was a murderer, put on a, ba- put on a little basket, like seemingly the most uninvolved, unintentioned guy, and God says, nope, your time is now. What I'm saying, body, is I think we have a lot of growth. Whatever season of life you're in. So let's see Moses' response. This is good. Huh. Speaking of questions, but Moses said to God, who am I? <laughs> it's fair. 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Who am I? So, a couple questions. Is it humble? Is it being humble like Peter? Like, Lord, I'm not worthy. Like, who am I, God? Is that his intention? Is he literally just assessing himself? <laughs> it's just not humility and just reality. Like, man, who am I? You know, like, seriously, God, I, I, can't, I can't do this. The question at this point doesn't matter. Look at God's response. He said, but I will be with you. Come on, come on. Does God say, hey, it's okay. It's all right, Moses. You can do it, buddy. Right? Hey, remember, Moses, like, I've gifted you in all these ways. God does not enable the human insecurity. He does not coddle it. He never addresses it. What does he do? He doesn't even ask, answer Moses' question. Who am I? All God says is, I am with you. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know, oh, Moses, it'll be okay. Moses, but you're going to be a great speaker. But Moses, you're going to be an encouragement. But Moses, in our human insecurities, we are so used to being coddled by one another's encouragement instead of resting in the character of God. And I'm just speaking for one person on my behalf. I, at times, struggle with insecurity. I struggle with, are you agreeing with that? Like, so, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Now I'm insecure about that agreement, you know? Dang, I didn't think it was that bad, but okay, I guess it is, you know? Right? No, I'm, I'm with you. I know, I know, it's all good. Even if you did, even if you did, right? I struggle with insecurity. Anybody else? Anybody else? So where we turn, where we turn to meet the insecurity is each other. And if that was God's intention, then God would have brought up one of the sheep and said, look, Moses, you've done a great job with this little sheep. You'll do a great job with them. He never says that. You won't do a great job, Moses. I will. You won't be consistent, Moses. I will. You're going to waver, Moses. I will. You're going to doubt me, Moses. I, I will be there with you. And that's all he needs to know. And I'm telling you tonight, that's all you need to know. That's all. That's it. That's it. You don't need your insecurities coddled. You don't need to be reminded of your spiritual gifts. You need to know that there was one who gave you those gifts. And you need to know that there's one who's holding you in the palm of his hands. All God says to this man, and who am I? As he says, I am with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You're coming back to this mountain, and you'll remember, and the sign that I have said this and spoken this to you will be, I will show you that I'm going to bring all these people out. I'm going to show you. Now, I have a huge question to ask you. I feel like many of you want a burning bush. In fact, you've said at times, if God would just clearly map it out for me. I believe, in general, we long for our burning bush. The encounter with God, clearly speaking, clearly communicating, clearly making it all known. I believe we desire that. We want that. 
But can I ask you this? What is the difference between what Moses had in the burning bush and what you have with what resides in you? In other words, we celebrate the burning bush. Man, what a moment! Could you imagine God encountering man with a bush coming from the mouths of people that have God residing in them? Speaking out of our mouths, man, could you even begin to imagine encountering God in such an intimate way, coming from the mouths of someone who has access to encounter God any day, any time, any moment. The flame of God's spirit burning hot in those who believe. Burning hot. And you're like, but Mark, it's different. Maybe a little. Maybe his voice hasn't boomed from the heavens. But I believe he's called your name before. And some of you tonight, maybe never, but maybe tonight is the night that he will call. Maybe tonight some of you guys are hearing your name repeated over and over and over. And what's happening is God is saying, I'm here. You don't have to rest or trust in your insecurities anymore. I'm real. I came down to deliver, even you. Remember remember my guy Moses? He was a murderer, a shepherd, insignificant. Egyptians hated shepherds, and I called him. And some of you right now hearing God's voice. And those of you who are believers who have been waiting for your moment, I'm telling you right now, we have made the scripture so insignificant and heightened encounters with God like this, to a place that, that is unreachable when we have the spirit inside of us and we have the word of God at our access. I'm saying we have access to God that Moses did not have. And so for me, I feel like that means seasoned folks, it's time to go. God's in you. He's empowering you and I know you're scared. But they won't accept me. But they won't love me like I think they should. But, but, but they'll, they'll have problems like, I'm a, I'm a generation off. Like, I'm not cool. No one wants you to be cool. Let me just say that. Okay? There are no younger folks here who want you to be hip and cool. What we want you to be is Holy Spirit-empowered wisdom and season. If you want to wear a sweater vest, rock it. If you want to wear your loafers, it it doesn't matter. Get over those fears. And God is saying, I'm with you. For those of you that have been blaming your lack of missionality on your children, I tell you what, you better repent of that blame. You're looking at those kids and, and you're making them an obstacle in your living life with people, in discipleship, with people on mission. Those kids are some of your greatest assets. People need to see you parenting. They need to see you struggling. They need to see you repenting when you make errors in your parenting. And we isolate ourselves often in that season. But we need time. We need time. I understand. We need family time. And my family needs to have time together. But you know what also needs to happen? My family needs to see my family. And they need to see me, how I interact with my family. Those of you college students who are waiting for your time, waiting for your call, waiting for your burning bush. Listen, I'm saying it's right now. There's no need to wait one more day.
we have access to God that Moses didn't. And that, my friends, overshadows every insecurity I've ever had about my lack of giftings, or my thoughts, or my direction. And tonight, God is just saying to our who am I, I'm with you. That's all you got to know.